A lot of great things coming to Rock Hill. It really was the people of Rock Hill. How many things does Rock Hill have going on? And you get to be a part of that. Now it's like, wow, I wanna be there. I wanna live there. I wanna go there. It is extraordinary. The changes that have happened and what I really believe is just the next really great city in South Carolina. Hello and welcome into Rock Hill CityCast. My name is Matthew Cray, co-host Ashley Studebaker to my right. We aim to keep you informed on all things going on inside the city of Rock Hill. Uh, special guest in the house today is Gary Simrel, uh, former state representative, or are you still there? Still there till about November 15th. So okay. uh, the last bit of toothpaste is coming out of the tube. <laughs> we were like rolling up the tube to try and make sure yeah. you got it all and <laughs> pushing it out the top. So soon to be former state representative Gary Simrel uh, with us today. And uh, Gary, before we get started into all of the questions about what you've done and your time in Columbia, uh, go ahead and give us the elevator speech about who you are and how you got to be where you are today. Great question. Uh, I'm a sand lapper, which uh, for those that aren't from South Carolina, just means you're a native South Carolinian. Uh, born and raised in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Have always loved uh, my community. Uh, there's, a, there's a spirit uh, within this community. We're known as the good town, of course, and that, that comes with a reason uh, behind the name, not only the town being Rock Hill, because there's plenty of Rock Hill and here and it certainly had to go through a hill uh, to get it when the railroad came through but but I'm a pr proud son of of this community always wanted to serve went to Winthrop University it was college during the time that I went I was the last graduating class of Winthrop College it became university the next year so maybe I broke the mold decided to uh, get involved in politics and ran the next year uh, when I ran, people said, you know, you're too young, you're inexperienced, and you're a Republican. Uh, you'll never win. And they were correct. I didn't win. I did. Giving up was not in my spirit. And so I ran the next year, 1992, and fortunately was successful and have been in office ever since. Uh, 30 years, while it seems like a long time, looking back, uh, it was a flash in reality. But as I worked in Columbia, realizing that I went in as a, as a partisan person. I had run as a Republican. So, you know, in, in our book, Republicans are good. Democrats are bad. To the Democrats, they're good. We're bad. In reality, the way to forge relationships, the way to get things done is to work across the aisle. And when I was elected, there were only 43 Republicans in the House out of 124 body. That number is reversed today, but then it was not. And so you had to learn uh, to work with both sides. And so uh, over my time, while I never really sought leadership positions, I was more focused on constituent service back home. Uh, those leadership positions started finding me later, and it was just I had had the experience, obviously, of a, of a seasoned um, legislator, but as they came, I took them for what they were and started working uh, really in those leadership positions, trying to be a nonpartisan partisan. And while that sounds a little difficult to even say, it's even harder to do. But I did that. And so um, the template really has been set, and hopefully – uh, more and more people follow that way of thinking. And I often said about South Carolina, 
one good thing about us, uh, and there are many, but we're not Washington, D.C. You know, we're, we're not in atrophy. We're not in gridlock. Uh, we get things done. We cooperate. We collaborate. We partner to make South Carolina a better place. And I think part of that dynamic of forging relationships uh, to make South Carolina is kind of the scout motto, you know, leave it better than you found it. And those have worked. And so for me to have been just a small part uh, of that dynamic and the fabric that we see in South Carolina has been has been a highlight of my life. So I made a little, I drew a little graphic here, <laughs> um, the Gary Simrall timeline. So if, if you can just walk us through some of the big milestones of things you help push through and get accomplished during your time in Columbia. So it's interesting because it's it's a wax and wane of things because in in most cases you end up responding to issues more than preparing for issues. But certainly um, probably, and I've joked about this before, but one of my biggest accomplishments is the fact that the boiled peanut is actually the official state snack food of South Carolina. <laughs> and so people laugh and they said, you know, the boiled, see, exactly, actually, <laughs> uh, that the boiled peanut, well, the governor at the time, Governor Mark Sanford, called and said, I would like to come to Rock Hill to sign this bill into law. And I thought, Governor, you, you do know that this is the boiled peanut bill. He said, absolutely. The reason it's important is because it shows process, not product. And the process was, I had a constituent who loved peanuts call me and ask me to introduce this bill because we did not have an official state snack food. We had a drink, but no food. And so I started this process, and you would think, well, that's an easy task to pass a bill. Well, obviously, some people have peanut allergies, so they weren't real thrilled with this particular piece of legislation. The pork rind lobby decided it should be the pork rind instead of the boiled peanut. So actually, we battled over this particular piece of legislation, as funny as that may sound, in order for it to become law. The governor came, signed the bill into law at Farmers Exchange, and uh, Bynum Poe mixed us a great big batch of boiled peanuts, and we enjoyed them while we signed this piece of legislation into an act that became law. But the process was someone reached out, I acted, and that citizen's involvement created a law change in South Carolina. So it was the process of that. But going from that, probably if I look at legacy, two things stand out. Number one, uh, roads in South Carolina. Everyone bemoans the fact that South Carolina, fourth, fourth largest actually road system in the United States of America. Think about that a minute. Little South Carolina. <laughs> has the fourth largest network of state-maintained-slash-owned roads in the United States of America. But we didn't have the necessary funding in place in order to facilitate the repair, replacement, expansion of roads. So in 1987, Governor Carol Campbell, who was governor then, was courting BMW to come to the upstate. Part of what they needed was infrastructure. And really the way to pay for the infrastructure would be through fuel tax. At the time, our fuel tax was 13.75 cents per gallon, one of the lowest in the country. He asked for, this is a Republican governor, a Democrat legislature, he asked for a nickel to take it from 13.75 to 18.75. They negotiated at three pennies 
And so in 1987, we had a three cent gas tax increase in South Carolina. Fast forward, now we're, you know, 2010, we now have 4.6 million people living here in South Carolina at that juncture based on the 2010 census. And of course, that growth, that 16.75 cannot keep up with the demands. <clears throat> so I was tasked with chairing a committee. I was biased when I went into this committee because I knew that DOT needed to be reformed, but I didn't think it needed any more money necessarily. But, but I based the testimony on stakeholders from around South Carolina to come up with a solution. And, and we did determine that DOT needed to be reformed. So we did that. We reformed DOT's governance model. We reformed how commissioners get elected. We reformed many, many aspects of the auditing process within DOT. But we also realized that I, come to, I had come to realize that it did need an infusion of dollars. It took three years to get that piece of legislation passed. Two governors threatened vetoes. Government master, of course, did veto it. We overrode that veto, and it ended up being a 12-penny gas tax increase over a six-year period, two pennies per year for six years. We have now entered the sixth year, so we are now at 28.75 cents per gallon, still one of the lowest uh, in, the, in the nation, actually. <clears throat> but that has helped facilitate what we need for our roads. And, and we didn't get into that situation overnight. We won't get out of it overnight, but there have been billions of dollars now put back into infrastructure. Here, here is part of the dumb luck clause in that bill. And I say dumb luck because I did it, but I didn't know the ramifications of what I was doing at the time. And every time I would think about the gas tax, so we pay for roads in South Carolina based on volume of fuel sold. Well, as cars become more economical, as you have hybrids, as you have EVs, that starts taking away from that source of revenue based on volume because the volume is in, is in fact dropping. I added a value component. And so we took the dollars that you pay when you buy boat, car, motorcycle, truck, the $500 tax is now called an IMF. Uh, infrastructure maintenance fee. We put that money directly to DOT as well. Interestingly enough, when COVID hit in 2020, fuel consumption dropped in the second quarter in South Carolina by almost 40%. So no money coming in or not as much money coming in. We were then faced with, what do you do? Well, guess what happened at the same time? People started buying cars and trucks and boats and motorcycles as if they were going out of style. And so it increased the dollars on the value side, but not the volume side. So we kept an even keel, which meant we were able to draw down other federal match dollars that other states that didn't have our mix of how you pay for roads. So we ended up with about $1.1 in extra dollars that, in essence, we didn't even have to pay for. I mean, that's how that system worked. And I did. I was not smart enough to figure that out going in. That's why I say it was dumb luck uh, that that happened. But fortunately for South Carolina, her citizens and our roadways, that made a difference. So that that's a legacy part as I look you know, back on my career. The, the other part deals with higher education. And so in 2019, I was given the task of 
the budget for higher education. Well, one of the things that if you historically look at things, in 2002, there was an election, and Jim Hodges was the incumbent. Mark Sanford ran against him. Mark Sanford was victorious. He became governor in January of 2003. He did not want to spend money, borrowed money especially. So he, he was more of a tight-fisted governor, which people appreciated. Unfortunately, higher ed took it on the chin. So starting in 2003, where we would have a bond bill to pay for maintenance, infrastructure, technology. I mean, think about the technology curve in the early 2000s. College is keeping up. Look at the room we're in today, the technology that exists in order to pay for that. But they didn't have the funding. So colleges and universities were forced to go outside and start borrowing their own dollars to help pay for the needs on the university. Got to a point where about 20% of what you would pay in tuition actually was debt-related where the college had to borrow the money because the state was not doing its job in making that happen. I wanted to reverse that. So the first thing we did was start front-loading dollars to keep tuition low in South Carolina. We were able to accomplish that working with the Senate, working with the governor. So that, that was part number one. Part number two was how do you make up for that loss of revenue that colleges didn't have for technology, maintenance, new buildings, keeping up with competition. So we took 100% of the proceeds from the capital reserve fund, dollar one-time dollars that came in, and devoted them fully to higher ed. And that's higher ed four-year and technical colleges. We also increased the amount of scholarships for students to go, especially needs-based scholarships, to bring more and more people onto college campuses who wanted to go but heretofore maybe could not go for dollar reasons. And we had made college so expensive that it was more of a, a preclusion as well. So those are the, 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 that template of taking those one-time dollars, putting them back into the universities, mitigating the tuition increases or as best we could Ironically, what's the, what's, what do we talk about today? Number one problem we face economically, inflation. Mm -hmm. From 2019 to 2022 current, in those four years, there has been next to zero inflation for tuition in South Carolina at a state-supported institution. I don't read that on the news. I don't see it much, but that's a reality. And so for all the things that have gone up over the last year or two years, college tuition in South Carolina has not. Now, I don't know about room and board and food and those kind of things, the ancillary fees, but for tuition, we have kept it in check. So what has been the most, I mean, you know, you have people get into politics and they might just be kind of locally, but you were, you know, kind of up there. So like, what was the biggest challenge for you and just facing all the different, like working across the board? What, what was so challenging for you? I don't know that it was a challenge. I think the challenging part is the dealing with the echo chamber, those outside who say you shouldn't work with the other party, um, that, that you need to be in control. And in reality, um, I, am, I am constructed to make friends and not enemies, to, to try to work as best we can amidst the biblical verse, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with others. In politics, a lot of times that's difficult. 
What I focused on, though, was policy over politics. And sometimes when that happens, you don't get everything you want. So that goes to the C word, and the C word is compromise. And a lot of people don't like compromise. I'm probably one of them that doesn't like compromise. So what I said instead, let's get another C word. And that C word is consensus. So you and I both want to go to the beach, but you like to drive the interstate, and I like to go to the back roads. We know where we're going. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out how we can get there that you're happy and I'm happy. And may- maybe it's a mix of those two ways to travel. But that's a simplistic view of it. But in reality, if, if we're willing and we truly want to get there, we can make that happen. I've noticed in politics, and it's probably more now with social media, the influence that is there, but there are some people that are bridge builders. We want to build a bridge. We want to make tomorrow better. There are others that are in politics to burn bridges. They want to burn the place down and start over. How they do that, I don't know, but they become infidels to the, to the very government that they want to serve and to the people that they want to serve. And that, that's a sad state of affairs when that happens, uh, but it's happening more and more. I think you see it more and more in Washington, especially. We talked about that earlier. But South Carolina is changing, too. And so for those people that just want to be involved to destroy versus to build, we've got to get through that. I mean, the, the, I've often looked the ends of the bell-shaped curve. Today, because of social media, I think, in the echo chamber, that the ends think they're the middle because they're only hearing from each other. And so they don't realize there's this huge expanse that is between those two poles that is actually where most of the working and living and making the country and the state what it is. And so I think that's unfortunate. Um, why did you decide originally to get into politics And why the decision now, after 30 years, to call it quits? Interesting question. I felt a calling both times. I don't wear my religion on my sleeve, but I felt a desire to enter politics. And when I entered, I lost. And so it was like, hmm. But I learned from the loss. I I would not take that loss away. If I could repeat it, I would repeat the loss. Because it taught me growth. It taught me rejection. It taught me look at things from a different perspective. And leaving politics was the same. I felt a desire that it was time to go. And some people say, gosh, look at what you've been able to accomplish. Don't leave now. And in reality, it was almost Seinfeldian for me that, um, my word, (laughs) that, that I went out on top. I mean, I yeah. went out as majority leader as uh, having accomplished things for my community, having been able to help constituents, um, that I, I chose when to run and I chose when to leave. And so uh, that was important. That, but, but the biggest success ever in my political career was before I got elected. And I was knocking on doors and I knocked on the door of my future wife and met her uh, while (laughs) while I was running for office. Yeah. And so uh, I thought, you know, and this was my second time running, so I'd already lost once. So I knew knew the rejection already, but she did not reject me. Uh, And and then I went on to win in November, and then we were married the following December. So that was November 92 was my first winning election. December of 93 was my 
uh, wedding date, and we've been married almost 30. It'll be 30 years oh, wow. next year. So, uh, you know, what a, what, a, what a ride, what a career. The fact that, you know, I was able to uh, find my life mate and soulmate uh, during, running, during the time of running for office was, was quite, quite great. Would you say that all that you can do as a politician to make a difference, is that the most rewarding thing to you, or is there something that stands out more so? Well, so we talked about hallmark pieces of legislation, legacy things, but in reality, when you are able to cut red tape or make a difference in someone's life, I don't post that on social media. Um, some people do. I'm not one of those. But that is the satisfaction. I remember helping a family one time uh, that had a child that had been put in foster care, and we were able to cut through red tape to see the look on their face and their child's face. I still get emotional. <clears throat> and so th there's not a greater reward that you, you could ever hope for. Um, I helped a gentleman who was trying to have a surgery, and he couldn't the, the appointment kept getting because ICU beds were hard to get, and mm -hmm. so they kept putting it off and putting it off, and they're like, you're a ticking time bomb. And he called me, and I was able to work through the Medical University of South Carolina with their help and got him treated. He's home resting today. And, you know, I was just thinking, those are things that I'm not going to tout. I'm not going to put it on a bumper sticker. I'm not going to post it on social media. But to that person me being in politics or me being where I was at the time made a difference to them. Uh, so we work here at the city of Rock Hill and I, how often in your 30 years have you worked alongside with the leadership here at the city? Uh, all 30. Okay. So, and, and I go back, you know, when you start thinking about Betty Jo Ray was mayor uh, when I got elected and I worked with her. I thought the world of her, she was a family friend. And so, you know, I, I certainly knew uh, Betty Jo Ray I remember the election between Bidwell Ivey and Betty Jo Ray in 1986 that Betty Jo um, was victorious in. And then, of course, Doug Eccles came in. He had been on council prior. Uh, he had been red-shirted. We call it when you, when you lose an election and you come back. And that was over Cherry Park. And I was thinking at the time he made a policy decision for what he thought was the best decision for Rock Hill. He was right. The timing was wrong because at it, during that campaign, that idea of Cherry Park was rejected at the ballot box, and he suffered the consequence. But time passes, people realize that is a jewel for Rock Hill. As a matter of fact, it was the precursor for what we see today in sports tourism in Rock Hill, and that was Doug Eccles. And so he came back, you know, with, with like ashes from the phoenix he came back to show what that leadership was but he he chose policy over politics and if you ask him the question today he would say he made the right decision then and he would he would never change his vote if he could look into the future and say i'm getting ready to get defeated by this vote would you still cast that vote that becomes a, a crucial question and i know what his answer is so i, I certainly work with him and then of course uh, john geddes uh, I've worked with John Geddes. So I, I look at, at the relationship, you can call it symbiotic, but the fact is that we all represent, whether I'm in the state house, somebody's on county council, somebody's on city council, we all represent the same people. And so if we are more focused on who we represent 
rather than what we represent, there's there's nothing we can't do. And so for the city, I'm proud of the city of Rock Hill that, that we've been able as a community to accomplish what we've accomplished, to be a welcoming place when people come here, they love Rock Hill. And so to be just a small part of that is is also rewarding. So we all went through this thing called a global pandemic together. And for most of us, it was kind of just gut-wrenching and just exhausting. But at the state level, I can imagine it was on another level. What what was that like for you during that time? So interesting uh, question. March of 2020, you know, we're going gangbusters in the house. We've already formulated our 2020 budget. Get a phone call, and the governor, the speaker, uh, the president of the Senate, uh, majority leaders and minority leaders, we, we go with the governor to hear a report uh, from DHEC about what is coming our way. Uh, if you remember, there was a hot spot in Kershaw County, South Carolina. That's where um, really the, the pandemic started in South Carolina, and that was based on a flight from Italy back to Charlotte to Kershaw and the, the city of Camden. And so we started looking at this, and as you know, it just exploded. But as a state, we had to make sure we had measures in place. So as, as leadership then, we worked with the governor to do executive orders to make sure we were following protocol. We were working with the federal government and our partners to keep South Carolina where we needed to be. We could not meet then as a General Assembly, which we're required to by the Constitution. There is nothing set up in our Constitution and probably should not be that you can zoom in to a legislative session. You have to meet because you represent the people. So it became difficult. So we relied upon the executive branch, in this case, Governor McMaster, to ex uh, issue executive orders to keep government running. We had to go to a continuing resolution. We could not complete a budget. The good news for South Carolina, 2019 was a great year. So as we got into 2020 and we had to repeat the 2019 budget, we were able to do that. Come November, you're taking this new step. What is, what's next for you? What are you, what are you doing? So interesting, another interesting question. And so uh, I call it a soft landing, uh, ending 30 years in office where you work for others. I mean, you could say you're in a leadership position. What that means is you have more people that you actually answer to uh, in that regard. And the citizens of Rock Hill, of course, I still answer to. But I wanted to be involved. I love my community. Uh, I graduated from Winthrop uh, College, as I said earlier, now university. And so I was able to take a position with Winthrop. And in my job description and title is, is one and the same, and I'm a special assistant to the president for community engagement. And in reality, it's doing what I have always done, and that is engage, help, collaborate, partner, seek better solutions to what we have in our community. And for Winthrop, having a new president that started the same day I did, July 1st, uh, we're, we're both new on, on our respective jobs. But to make sure that Winthrop is what it, Winthrop's been here 136 years. So great partnership within the community, but there does not need to be a silo. Uh, Winthrop needs to be meshed with the fabric of the community, which it has for years. Unfortunately for us, when Dr. DiGiorgio retired, 2013, 
from 2013 to really 2022 in that nine-year, almost 10-year span of time. Winthrop became more disengaged than engaged, and it, and it wasn't Winthrop's fault. It was the fact that they went through you know, three different interims and two presidents that didn't, didn't stay a long time. And so it was circumstance that happened. My role, along with President Cerna, and he is absolutely fantastic to work with, our roles, uh, he is the CEO and me as, as the assistant, um, we want to make sure that the relationship between Winthrop University, the community, the city of Rock Hill, the state of South Carolina is fluid, that Winthrop is open for business, Winthrop has capacity, it is a cornerstone uh, for Rock Hill, not only for education, but for economic development. And to, to have that um, recipe that is part of, of this community and Winthrop, I, I am thrilled to have the opportunity to really continue public service. It's just in a different venue. We'll finish on a, a bit of a lighthearted note with about your time in legislature. What will you miss the most? And then just give us a funny story about something you remember, kind of akin to the, the peanut story. So the people. Uh, issues, I don't know that I'll, I'll miss as much, but, you know, people in every walk of life. And, and the interesting thing about politics is that, you know, if, if you serve within your community, you meet people throughout your community. When you serve in the state, I know someone from every nook and cranny of South Carolina in towns that I didn't know existed. I know we have 46 counties. I can't name all the towns, but I know someone from almost every place in South Carolina. And so to, to take that away from my experience, I would I would not give up on any of that. So funny stories, there are plenty of funny stories in, in Columbia, and I think you always have to keep your humor. But when I got to Columbia, we ended up being an office, our office suite was 420. So naturally it had, you know, undertones of, of what that meant in a California uh, respective. But this group of guys that I ended up being with is who is now Speaker of the House, who is just the past Speaker of the House, Chairman of Ways and Means, Majority Leader, Chairman of Ways and Means, and a, and a judge. So the, the, we, we were new. We didn't know anybody, and we didn't know anything. We had each other in this suite, 420. And so we decided to start our own caucus at the time, and that was the Eating Caucus. As it grew, people wanted to join this eating caucus. And so what we would do is allow guests to come in. We'd also have a guest speaker, and it was usually someone from the media or a coach. So part of the relationship that I st struck with media, uh, a lot of times politicians think media is the enemy. You know, they're out to get me, and I've got to guard myself. In reality, the media has a job to do, too. And so... While this is not the funny part, it is a relational part because we got together because we, we just didn't know what we were doing. We had to learn. But through that experience of those of us coming together, we knew how to navigate the media. We knew how to na navigate each other. We knew how to, how to navigate people. And that learning experience, I would never, I mean, I was just thinking, what were the chances that I got into Sweet 420 back in the, in the 90s? to be a part of that eclectic group that then went on to become the leaders of the state and still are to this day, even with my exit, and what we learned in dealing with people, 
the media, all of those aspects. Just just an amazing, amazing ride. Anything that we've missed or that you'd like to add? I think you have covered a ton. <laughs> we, we've, we've left several trains at the station, as you know. Oh, well, yeah. you did all the work, really. <laughs> I mean, you I carried mean. us. <laughs> well, thank you for giving us some time today and joining us on CityCast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill CityCast. Episodes are available each week to stream on SoundCloud, Google, and Apple Podcasts. To keep up with City of Rock Hill information, follow us on social media.